0: If you married a second time, how would you feel about your first husband? Would you have anything good to say about him, or would you vilify him? Well, last week, we discovered that we are in our second marriage, spiritually. We were married to the law And it was not a good marriage. It was a passionate marriage, but a destructive one. One that led to nothing but alienation and death. We were freed from that first marriage, however, through the body of Christ. By faith and through the agency of Christian baptism, we were able to join ourselves with Christ on the cross and to die to the law that freed us to marry the resurrected Christ. And now through him, we are able to bear fruit for God. We are now in a good marriage, married to the perfect husband. So how do we feel about our first husband? We're obviously glad to be rid of him. But would we really be better off if we'd never met him? Did nothing good come from that relationship? Was the law bad for us? And since it ensnared us in sin and death, should we equate the law with sin? Well, Paul knew that some might conclude that from what he has said. So after he asks the question, he answers it in the 7th verse of the 7th chapter of Romans. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary. Then after saying on the contrary, he goes on to show that we needed the law. That the law is holy and righteous and good. And that without it, we'd never have run into the arms of our second husband. We needed the law. Because the law defines sin. It arouses sin. It empowers sin and It exposes sin. And if this had not happened, we'd never have come to Christ. So let's be thankful for the law. And let's see how it led us to the place where we were willing to do whatever needed to be done to be free from our first husband so we could be united with Christ. Paul begins by illustrating how the law defines sin. Picking up the second half of verse 7. I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Now, Paul is speaking from personal experience here. Beginning in verse 7 and continuing through the rest of this seventh chapter, Paul speaks in the first person. He is sharing with us his own personal experience with sin and the law. But that experience is not unique to him. His experience is pretty much universal because the law is intended to do in all of us what it did in Paul's life. And the first thing the law does is that it defines sin. It teaches us what is sinful. Now, it is true that even without the law, we have some idea of right and wrong. God has planted in the heart of every man a sense of what is right and what is wrong. But we did not understand the extent of sin until God spelled it out for us. Paul said he wouldn't have even known about coveting if the law hadn't said, you shall not covet. And coveting is one of those sins that Society tends to overlook. You know, even without a written law, most people know it's wrong to murder or to steal someone else's property. But coveting is a sin of the heart. You can covet without even doing anything that someone else can see. But coveting is sin, it is sinful to want what someone else has so much that you would take it if you thought you could get away with it. It's sinful to lust after another man's wife or his job or his car or his money. But Paul says he wouldn't have known it was sinful to covet if the law hadn't told him so. He wouldn't have understood That sin begins inside us. And that internal sin that hasn't even been expressed defiles us. And I'm totally lost. (laughs) Those internal sins cut us off from a holy God even before they find expression in our behavior. So we needed the law to define us, to tell us what is sinful. We would have figured some of it out on our own, but we would not have figured it all out. Some sins are just too subtle and are easily overlooked. So God spelled them out for us. But defining sin is only the beginning of the law's work. Next, Paul says, in effect, the law arouses sin. Verse 8. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Now, This may seem strange. Why would anyone want sin to come alive? But that's exactly what Paul says the law did for him. When he learned through the law that coveting was sinful, he found that he was coveting all the time and more and more. When he saw things that appealed to him, the law often spoke up and said, you can't have it. It belongs to someone else. And as soon as that happened, he wanted it. Sin, Paul said, taking opportunity through the commandment produced in him coveting of every kind. Now that's the same thing that happened in the Garden of Eden. You know, God gave Adam and Eve all the trees in the garden except one. They were free to eat from any tree except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But Satan used that prohibition to tempt Eve. He came to her and said, Is it true you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Now God hadn't said that. He had given them permission to eat from all the trees except one. Satan magnified the prohibition, kind of like a friend who says, Your parents don't let you do anything. He got her thinking about that tree from which they couldn't eat. And the more he thought about it, the better it looked. It was a delight to the eyes, it looked better than all the other fruit in the garden. She found herself walking right by the fruit she could have so she could just gaze upon that forbidden fruit. And finally it got to her. She could stand it no longer. She just had to have it. But it wasn't her fault. If God hadn't said that she couldn't have it, she would have never wanted it. She wouldn't have sinned against God if he hadn't said no. And that's true. Ultimately, it wasn't her fault. Because as Paul points out, apart from the law, sin is dead. It's inactive. But the law arouses sin. The law brings sin to life. In fact, The law empowers sin. Verses 9 through 11. And I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, deceived me. And through it, killed me. Sin would have no power over us if it weren't for the law. And it certainly could not condemn us to death without the law. Paul said he was doing fine, or so he thought, before he was confronted by the law. He thought he was alive. He was going through life feeling good about himself. But then the law came along and turned him into a sinner. The law defined much of his behavior and thought life as sin. And once it was brought to his attention, he found himself sinning more and more. Eventually, he had to admit that he really wasn't alive. He was dead spiritually and the commandment that was intended to teach him how to live had succeeded in killing him. He had thought he could please God through obedience to the law, that he could earn his own salvation. He had even been a Pharisee of Pharisees, the best of the best with regard to the law. But it hadn't been good enough. The harder he tried, the worse he knew he was doing. And the more he tried to obey the law, the more alive sin became in his life. Finally, he realized he had been deceived. He couldn't save himself. And the more he learned of the law, the more he realized he deserved to die. The law had, in effect, killed him. But was that a bad thing? Had the law become an evil instrument of death? No. No. The law was doing exactly what God intended it to do. It was exposing sin as something utterly sinful. So then, the law is holy. And the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin. In order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good, that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. It wasn't the law caused Paul's spiritual death. It was sin. The law is holy and righteous and good. It wasn't the law that killed Paul. It was sin. The law merely exposes sin for what it is. It's like an MRI that shows us what's wrong on the inside. You know, an MRI doesn't cause cancer. It merely reveals its presence. Now, it's a horrible thing to discover that you have cancer. I was shocked when I found out I had it. But you don't blame the test. You don't blame the MRI for your cancer. In fact, if it reveals it in time, it gives you the opportunity to do something about it. Now, you can choose... To ignore it, you can deny the PSA is for real, but that would be foolish. An MRI can show you what cancer is doing in you on the inside, and to ignore it is to face certain death. The law does the same thing with regard to sin. It exposes it for what it is. It shows it to be a horrible malignancy that's destroying us from the inside out and that it will result in our spiritual death unless we do something about it. But we have to see sin in all its ugliness and its sinfulness before we'll do anything about it. So God uses the law to define Sin. He uses it to arouse sin and to empower sin so we can expose sin for what it is and motivate us to do something about it. We needed the law. We needed that first marriage to convince us that things could be a whole lot better. And when we discovered that Christ was willing to pay the price to make our second marriage possible, we jumped at it. But it was our first husband that drove us to our second. So we're thankful for the law. For without it, we would have never come to Christ. Now, it's true. The law reveals us to be sinful men. But the good news is that Christ receives sinful men. He can cleanse us and set us free from sin. Thank God for that first marriage. And then thank him for making it possible for that marriage to be ended. Ask him to cleanse you and set you free from sin so you can enter into that second marriage today. Christ is waiting at the altar. If you've not said, I do, this can be your wedding day. Let's stand.